Well, we're going through the book of Luke, and for weeks now, we've been digging into the Sermon on the Plain, which is actually a shorter version of the Sermon on the Mount that you can find in Matthew chapter 7. And as we bring it to a close, the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount or Plain, I want you to keep in mind who Jesus was talking to. Remember what I said? He's talking to his disciples, but in front of a large crowd. Because he wants to clarify for everybody, including his disciples, who is really in the kingdom or not. So turn with me in your Bibles again to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Now, I hope you realize in this parable that he concludes with, the house is a life. We're all building a life. We're all making choices. We're all living in certain ways. And Jesus wants to clarify Who is it that is following him, living for him? Who is it that's been born again? Who is it that is in the kingdom or not? Because this can become confusing. People can think they're in when they're not. People can have lack of assurance that they really are when they are. And so Jesus is bringing this to us to clarify for us. In fact, once again, you'll find places where Jesus is certainly wanting to comfort people. You'll find it relentlessly. He was full of compassion. But you'll see places where Jesus was actually trying to rattle and shake up people and unsettle people because he loves them enough who might just think they're okay when they're not okay. This is one of those messages. This message is much more of a warning, a sober warning to all of us. He's actually wanting to thin out the crowd because he was never interested in just being a pop star or celebrity that had a huge following. Jesus wanted to make disciples. 
And so he's trying to help people understand the difference between being a disciple or a kingdom person and just being religious. Because I hope you realize you can be religious and still go to hell because you do not know him. You're not in a relationship with him. So Jesus is wanting to clarify this all-important issue. And so before we dive into the particulars, I want you to look at verse 40 again. Because I think in verse 40, Jesus is telling us what the end game is really all about. If you've gotten confused, Christianity's been around for centuries now. You live in America. You've heard a lot. If you've gotten confused, what is a Christian? How do I know if I'm a Christian? Am I in the kingdom or not? He clarifies it for us in verse 40. He gives us the end game. He says, his followers, his followers are becoming more like him. It's not about information, you guys. Certainly, you got to have a measure of information to ever come to faith in Christ. But we have a culture and human beings tend to think information alone is enough. I got the information. I got the information. I know it. Okay. He's saying it's not just information. It is life transformation that is the strongest indicator that you're one of his. Now, don't get confused because we say it all the time. How do you get saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Here's the problem. We love to hear that and say, and after I come to faith in him, I still do nothing. Not a good sign. So you don't work for your salvation. But when you've been born again, you were dead, but now you're spiritually alive. You were doing your own thing, but now you say, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. Your life starts to change. Will it be perfect? But there's change. You're becoming more like him. There's a new power. You have a new appetite that was never there before. You have a desire and a hunger to know him and please him and hear him and follow him. And you fall down, yes, two steps forward and one back. But there is a new appetite, a new hunger. And yes, if someone was to watch you for a while, would say, you know what? There's some things about her or him. And that is so different. They were never like that before. Change, you guys. In fact, someone just might possibly think, they remind me of Jesus. She reminds me more of Jesus. We're supposed to become more like him, not just know more about him. So that's what this message is about as he sticks the landing on this sermon. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what true disciples look like. And here's what I think is interesting. He indicates that this process of discipleship, of becoming more like him, will be radical and painful. If you say, Brad, I didn't see the word radical or painful in anything he said. Let me help you. He's telling us it's going to be radical and painful when he chooses to use the word. That phrase fully trained in the English is actually one word in the Greek. Katartizo. He chose to use that word to indicate what his followers will look like. And it's a word that meant to mend a torn fishing net or to set a broken or dislocated bone back into place. Now, two things I think that are indicated by that when you think about it. In other words, when we come to faith in Christ, we're a mess. 
We're ruptured. Our lives are ruptured and torn and broken. Oh my goodness, the priorities we have, what we want, how we think is often so disjointed and misaligned from how he would want us to live and think. We show up messed up, but we don't just stay the same. All this, this out of alignment. And so this word means to begin to sew something back up or to put a broken or dislocated bone back into place. So there's the second thing that's worth noting. The process is personal and will be painful. And you just might need help from someone else. You know anything about a dislocated or broken bone? I know Hollywood shows us on a regular basis sometimes the hero, you know, like Rambo hanging on the side of a cliff, using just one arm and his teeth to sew his own arm up. All right, I don't think we have a lot of Rambo sitting with us. Like, I can't suture this myself. You ever seen a dislocated shoulder? I played football. I saw it many times as someone came to the sidelines in excruciating pain. And I haven't seen anybody yet. I never saw them say, I'll take care of that myself. No, they needed a trainer to come over and say, now hold still. Because this is really going to hurt. But it's going to feel a lot better after I do this. And I mean like. Oh, blinding pain at the top of your head, like white lights everywhere. And then you feel better. But you would never have done it to yourself. You needed help. So here's what I want you to understand. True followers of Jesus Christ. Yes, they arrive ruptured, dislocated, stuff's broken. But they don't stay that way. And the process of becoming more like him when he lives in you and you have a new desire is often painful and involves other people. Which is why our church family doesn't just do this. I love this. I work hard for this moment to study, to teach you. But we don't think just sitting in a big room or watching online is enough. And I I fear what's happened from COVID is a lot of so-called Christians have decided, couch church is great. I'm never going back. That would be a really bad idea. If you understand what Jesus is really saying, just listening to good sermons, downloading great sermons, loading up your podcast, listening to worship music, but being all by yourself, not connected with a real body will not move you towards becoming like Jesus. We will never get unstuck or do what would be necessary in our lives all by ourselves. Which is why our church does community groups. Not because we're like, I don't know what to do with several nights of my week. No, we're all busy. But to be at close range with other believers, holding on to each other, praying for each other, helping each other. It's why we do biblical counseling where we sit down with one person or a couple to help them get unstuck, right? Often we're so stuck. Some of us have been that way so long. My whole life I was like this. Dislocated, something broken, something ruptured to the point that you think it's normal. But God's word says that can change by God's spirit and with God's word. And often with another brother, sister sitting across from you, listening and loving and helping. It's why we do care groups focused on different hurts and issues like grief or divorce or addiction or money or whatever. Because most of us need help. It's personal. It's painful. But it's possible when you come to faith in Christ. And there is new life. And so what does Jesus say kingdom people look like? How would you know if you're in the kingdom 
or not. There's so much from this passage that I had to just cast on the cutting room floor on Thursday. It just breaks my heart when I edit. And I'm like, I cut good stuff out. But I got two. Two I held on to. Number one, here's what I think when you see from this passage. Jesus says, when you are in the kingdom, you start with your own heart before trying to point out what's wrong with everybody else. Oh, my God. Goodness, is that radically different than how we naturally think? And is it radically different than our culture? We live in a day where everyone has learned to be suspicious and critical of everybody else while rarely ever being suspicious or critical of your own heart. But I'm so suspicious and critical. Why'd you really do that? There's a different motive. You didn't really. I know know why you did that. But me? My emotions are justified. Your freaking out is not justified at all. My emotions are absolutely justified. My motives are pure. Why I'm doing what I'm doing is gold. It's godly. What I want, my desires are legitimate. What you want, not so much. And my assessment of you is spot on accurate. Come to me. I'll tell you all about you and how you need to change. Right? I mean, we laugh, but is that not the day we live in? While... You say, well, Brad, the reason I'm not suspicious and critical of my own heart, it's my heart. And I know it. And it's good. You don't know your Bible. You don't know your Bible. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us something about our own heart. I know you might be saying, but it's my heart. Wouldn't I know my heart? The Bible says, no, you don't. You actually don't. And we live in a culture that says, oh, when you want to be right on, when you want to be most authentic, when you want to do the right thing, follow your, say it, barf. (laughs) Yea, verily, vomit all over. Projectile vomiting. The Bible says, do not follow your heart. Don't. Guard it. For out of it. Be suspicious of it. Be suspicious of your own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Do you know you can be unaware of your own heart while you think what you're doing is absolutely... There's stuff that you don't know. It's deceitful. It will deceive you. So you, you, you learn, if, when you're a disciple, you say, all right, I don't want to trust my heart. I don't want to just go with what I think, what I feel. I'm going to start with my own heart and say, God, what am I not seeing about me? You realize there's always something you're not seeing about you? What am I not seeing about me? Show me me. Show me me first before I start saying, look at it again in verse 41. Why do you see the speck that in your, is in your brother's eye? Now notice... We're so good at seeing what's going on with with other people. Why do you you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the look? See, notice he doesn't say, you see it, but you don't want to deal with it. You don't even see it. You just don't see your own stuff. You do not notice the log in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? Now, what does he say you are if you're busy trying to help everybody else see their own junk and you haven't started with you? You hypocrite. You act like you're so excited about helping people change their life. Start with you. 
you. And, and notice he doesn't say there's not a place for helping someone else. He just says, first, get the log out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see more clearly. You realize until you've dealt with your own junk that's in your heart, you can't even really see people clearly. You cannot assess them. You're not perceiving things as accurately as you think unless you start with you, you. And if you're saying, okay, fine, I'll take this approach, Brad. That shouldn't take long because my stuff's little. Their stuff's big. You're still not listening to Jesus. He thinks very differently than that because notice how he chose to frame this up. He says, first, get the what? Log. And that still falls short. Jesus chose to use a Greek word that our English translators struggled to capture well. Some translations say log, but you can still step over a log when you're hiking. Some say plank, and you think two by four. And it's still a pretty big comparison when you think speck versus plank. But Jesus intended to do more. Jesus used a Greek word, dokas, that was a word for a load-bearing beam that was used for structural support in large construction projects. He's like, you got a load-bearing beam in your own eye and heart and life. And here's the other thing I think worth, worth noting. He's saying until you deal with your stuff that's so huge, it's likely supporting all kinds of other misinformation and wrong conclusions. So that until you deal with that, you probably will not go about this right trying to help other people. And I've said it before, I've been here 25 years now. In 2009, in a marriage series, I taught you something that I've still used for myself and I share it with my counselees relentlessly. Ask God. You say, how am I going to do this if my heart's deceitful and desperately sick and I don't see it myself? We ask God for so many things. Money, jobs, change her, change him, kill my boss. We ask, you know, we pray all the time. I think God's just sometimes leaning over the heavenly saying, Oh my word, stop saying prayer doesn't work. Ask me this, and I would love to answer it. Lord, help me to see my own sin first. To see it as worse, and to see it as what I need to be working on most. First, worse, most. Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking right now. What if it isn't worse? There's this worse. Different sermon. Pride. Go find it. Did that in 2006. Like, here's why it's worse. We tend to measure it. And it's like, mine isn't worse. It's worse because it's yours. You're going to stand before God for your sin, not theirs. So see it as worse because it's in your life. It's dishonoring to God. And it's keeping you from effectively living and helping other people. Say, God, show me my own sin first. Help me to see it as worse And help me to be working on it most. Why working on it most? Because you can actually do something about your stuff. You realize you can't actually control or change other people. Have you figured that out yet? Some of you mamas still haven't. No, no, I will. I will. I will. I will. He will be the son I want. You cannot control or change other people. But oh my goodness, what can start to happen in your life When you say, God, show me my own sin first and help me to see it as worse and help me to be working on it most. He says, kingdom people, not perfectly, begin to roll like that. And that is, this whole sermon, have you noticed this whole sermon is like, that's not how we naturally think, right? 
Prior to Jesus coming into your life, his spirit setting up housekeeping, resurrection power arriving, darkness gone, light. Our default setting is to slide our spouse, our roommate, our coworker, our friend, our fellow church member under the microscope of our indignant, self-righteous eye, criticizing and condemning everything they do while we don't see anything about us being wrong. That's our default setting. So when you begin to operate this way, oh my goodness, that's radically different. That's what kingdom people do, he says. And, and it helps so much in all the other relationships and life and what is going on. And to get this whole thing started, let me give you a prayer that you can pray. There is a prayer in the Bible that would capture, actually, show me my own sin first, worse, working on most. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search, who? Me, O God, and know my heart. Because, in other words, the psalmist is saying, because I don't. You do. Search me. I don't think there's anything wrong. But would you see? I think I know my heart, but you know it. Know my heart and my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me. In the way everlasting. Kingdom people start with their own heart. Kingdom people don't rise up. And now that they know Jesus and know his word, they hate people even more. They're very angry. They're very judgmental. They're very self-righteous. They're very condemning. There was a group in Jesus' day that were just like that. Did Jesus love them and did they get along well? Pharisees. Did they follow him and know him? Were they becoming more like him? Watch out, you guys. Just hating sin more and thinking God's called you to condemn every single person you see doing anything contrary to his word is not a good sign. Don't hear me saying God doesn't use us to speak truth. But oh my goodness, the first thing about your life is you're just so taken with change me, oh God. Help me see what I'm not seeing about me. Continue your good work in me. I want to be more like you. Less of me, more of you. Number two, Jesus says, when you're in the kingdom, and this is very similar. I chose two that are very similar. You start trying to put God's word into practice in your own life. You're like, what? You mean I've got to do it? I thought I just needed to know it and be able to quote it and stick the landing with a reference. The end game, you guys, is obeying his word and becoming more like him, not just knowing. Look at verse 47, because in verse 47, I think it captures well. One verse that indicates a clear progression of what kingdom living looks like. Here's what kingdom living looks like. Here's what kingdom people are in the process of doing. Not one verb, not two verbs, but three. Listen as I read it again, verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word. And does them. I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on. Now notice, he doesn't say a rock. The rock. He's talking about himself. He's the rock. Old Testament and New Testament both refer to Jesus as the rock. So there aren't many, many rocks in our world that you can just choose a more stable life to build, to build your life on. Jesus is the rock. 
And he's saying, here's who is actually in the kingdom and is following me and is building their life on the rock. Not just the ones who come to me, not just the ones who hear my word, but the ones who are trying to put it into practice. Granted, you've got to come to him. So that's step one. You've you got to stop running from him and you've got to come to him. But you're not done after you get there. Even that passage I love to quote often, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He didn't stop. Take my yoke upon you. You're like, oh, that doesn't sound restful. Take my yoke upon me. You and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly, and my burden is light. What he's saying is what this passage is saying. You come to him, and you don't just say, Lord, Jesus, I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to change my life at all. To take his yoke upon you means you hitch your life to him, and you say, now. It's not my will, but what do you say? What do you say about my money? What do you say about sexuality? What do you say about forgiveness? What do you say about relationships? What do you say? What do you say? I want to learn from you. They would hitch a young ox to a seasoned ox in the same yoke for that young ox to learn the right way. We come to him messed up. He doesn't want us to stay messed up. People who are truly born again want to be yoked to Jesus And say, teach me, I want to learn from you. Oh yeah, that's so different than what I would have thought. That's not been my life habit at all. But I want to learn from you. I want to go a different direction. Will we ever do it perfectly? No. But the desire is there and there's a willingness to submit your life. You come to him. You got to hear his words. Granted, if you don't know what he says about anything, you really are going to be in trouble. So you're going to have to make time. To hear his word, which, which means he's not here today, you know, physically to hang out with you in your den. You're going to have to read the Bible, you guys. You've got to make time to sit at his feet and hear, hear. You're going to have to turn off some of the noise of our world and some of the frenetic activity in your life to be still and read his word. But we've got Christians. Some of you are failing miserably at that. I get pushed back all the time. I'm just so busy. I'm just so busy. I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to feel bad about you for how messed up your life is then. Hope that doesn't sound harsh. But it's like there is not some magic elixir. Hey, how can I have a great life and never read the Bible? Can't. Next person. Like, this is a no-brainer. You must. This is food. This is your very food and substance and begins to renew your mind to think differently. You got to read it. But we've got some Christians that think that's it. I come to him and I hear his word. I read my Bible. I know my Bible. I can quote Bible. Boom, baby. Uh, You do realize some people who know their Bibles really, really well are actually really, really mean and judgmental and condemning and not like Jesus at all. And you can know your Bible and still be lost and go to hell. It's when you begin to put it into practice. Where first? In your own life. Your own life. Your own life. And he uses a word in the Greek there when he says, and to do his word, that means to continue in it. 
You don't give up quickly. Oh my goodness, right? When you read his word and it says this and I've been doing that, will that change easily and quickly? Could you be deceived by your own heart and think it's just who I am? Right? That's our favorite thing. It's what I hear in counseling all the time. It's just who I am. Yeah, well, that's why we're here. Because who you are isn't working out well. Who you are has led to a terrible marriage. Do you need me to just say, oh, wow, I, okay, it's just who he is. Hey, it's just who he is. Who he is needs to change. Who she is needs to change. And guess what? When you know Jesus and his spirit lives in you and resurrection power is there, it is possible. Is it hard? Oh, yeah. Is it a struggle? Oh, yeah. But the desire and the willingness to struggle is there. It's a word that means they continue in it. They don't just try it for a weekend and then quit and say, oh, that doesn't work. Come to me. Hear my word. And put it into practice. He said, this is what kingdom living looks like. This is what characterizes my kingdom people. Not just information. We live in a day that's so focused on information. A high tech day, right? But it's a curse. Because I think we've got so much information. It's caused a disconnect between what we know and what we do. And we're just overwhelmed by information. It's easy to settle in and think, I don't have to ever do anything with any of this. In the Christian life, Jesus says, that, that's not it at all. It'd be better if you took in less and focused on how to put it into practice in your life more. Information is supposed to lead to life transformation from the inside out by his grace and for his glory. So let me ask you, what are you doing? Right? So he's like, not just come to me, not just here, but put it into practice. What are you doing about what Jesus said about forgiveness? I get pushed back all the time from people who claim to be Christians. Jesus is Lord. You're going to forgive your mother? When hell freezes over, I'll forgive mama. Oh, wow, not a good sign at all, at all. It's like, it's like forgiveness is optional. Oh, you don't know what she did, what he did, what they, I don't need to, and neither does Jesus. He said his followers, kingdom people, are characterized by forgiveness. Now, don't hear me saying it's easy, but you're willing to struggle through it and do it because you are so overwhelmed by what he's done for you. He's forgiven you everything. Everything. So you're like, how could I not forgive? How could I not forgive? How could I not forgive? What do you do about what he says about forgiveness? Do you, do you treat it as optional or do you lean in? And, and like I said, you may need to get help from someone and say, oh my goodness, I realize I'm bitter and, and, and I haven't forgiven. Will you help me? That's not wrong. But if your thing is so dislocated and broken that you can't get it right yourself, that's why we have a church family. Say, help me. I can't keep living like this. Jesus calls me to forgive, but I'm struggling. No shame in saying, help me. Great shame in saying, it's just who I am and that is not going to change. That is not a good sign. You just might be outside the kingdom looking in. And you know a lot about the kingdom? But you've not been born again. You don't have the power that he's talking about. You don't have the new desire he's talking about. Ooh, let me really, if you thought that was uncomfortable, watch what I do next. What about sexual purity? I'm just grieved. I know I'm old. Call me old. Oh, you're old. 
I still believe that the Bible teaches that you're not supposed to live together and you're not supposed to just have sex after the third date like it's a handshake. Oh, everybody lives together and everybody has sex, Brad. Not according to the Bible. That is not changed. Our culture may have changed dramatically. God's word hasn't changed at all. Oh, but that would be hard. Yes. Don't hear me saying you won't have to fight. I mean, I fought, 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 fought to stay sexually pure leading up to our marriage. Whew. Don't hear me saying it's easy. Yeah, everything within me was all saying, also saying, do this now. But I was a believer and I was reading his word and I had other people in my life encouraging me to wait. If you're not married, you are not supposed to be sexually active. Jesus said, if you're not married and you're having sex, it's fornication. If you are married and you're, we, we, got, we got people who are not supposed to be having sex, having it all over the place. And those that are supposed to have it, not having it. I find that out in counseling. I'm like, you can have sex. Yeah, we're not. Everybody else that's not supposed to is. Could we get, this? our world is so broken. Go home and have sex. You're married. Like multiple times before we meet again. What in the world is going on? I'm exhausted. But God will help us. It's like if you're married, you're not supposed to be having sex with somebody else. And you want to do what he says. It'll be a fight. You'll fail at points, but you won't just say, oh, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter today. Things are so different today. Mm-mm. What about money? Whew. Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven or hell. Are you doing what he says about money? Are you giving away sacrificially Money to the point that it changes how you personally are able to live. Or do you say, it's mine. I worked hard for it. Why would I do that? I still don't have everything I want. Now, here's why I picked those three things, you guys. I could have rattled off dozens of different sins and things that he says. Those three areas I find, forgiveness, sexuality, and money, are three of the toughest areas for us. And therefore, I think could be three of the best areas to consider as you think, am I in the kingdom or not? Because these things just would not change on your own. Does that make sense? You would not just decide to be sexually pure. Are you crazy? You would not just decide to give away large amounts of money. Are you crazy? And you would never decide to forgive. Our world goes nuts when Christians forgive. They're like, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. That's wrong. In a sense, you're saying it's okay what they did. We're not saying it's okay what they did. We're saying he has forgiven me everything and it wasn't okay what I did against him. Therefore, I forgive. Consider. You think about it. Here's why it's so hard for us. The hurt is so real. Sexuality feels so personal. It's my body. And we live in a day that has combined sexuality and identity. And then money is so powerful. Our world harps about it and chases it and tells you all that can happen. Hurts, sexuality, money. I know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But in those three areas with the world, if they knew your finances, sometimes this happens. We met with a financial planner to make sure I'm not going to be living in a Winnebago in one of my kids' driveways. You know, because someone else on staff said, Brad, you got to be careful. You just keep it giving away so much. Make sure. So sat down with somebody. They didn't know what to do with us. They're like, you're living on 42% of what you make. Yeah, that's one way. So as my income is just going up and up and up and up, we didn't change our lifestyle. 
they don't know what to do with that. That's like, that's like, go buy a beach home. Go get a Lexus. Go do more, dude. What are you doing? It's like, is there anything about your life, if someone found out that you'd forgiven that, or that you were handling your money that way, or that you were fighting to stay? Um, my daughter Kelly got married, I don't know, three years ago. Everybody at the hospital where she works, St. Elizabeth, a den of iniquity. Everybody at the hospital when she got engaged said, oh, you're, you're going to live together. And she said, no, we're not. <laughs> like, are you crazy? Why wouldn't you live together? I'm a Christian. It's like, is there anything about your sexuality, your forgiveness, or your money that would cause the world to say, that's nuts? Guess what? There ought to be. This whole sermon was about, right? Upside down living. Do you have a desire to put his word into practice in your own life versus I know more, I know more, I know more, but it's all just head knowledge and it hasn't changed any area of your life. And don't make a mistake here. You may differ with me, but this is not a passage that is teaching, oh, You can come to faith in Christ for salvation. And this passage is about the optional, rigorous discipleship process that you might sign up for 2.0 and build your life on the rock and get serious. There is that teaching out there. Just pray a prayer, ask Jesus in your heart. Nothing has to change. News alert, the Bible doesn't teach that. And Jesus didn't teach that. When you come to faith in Christ and say, yes, Lord Jesus, a change process starts. You will not be perfect, but there's a change process. And that's what he's saying. My disciples are in a process of change. It's catartizo, things that were ruptured, being sewn back up, things that were broken and dislocated, being put back into place in a way that changes The direction they were moving, what they think, what they say, what they want, their priorities, their motives, their desires. It's not supposed to be, wow, golly gee, Uncle Freddie looks just like he did before he put his faith in Christ 15 years ago, 20 years ago at a Promise Keepers conference. He walked the aisle. We know he's saved. He still drinks hard. He cusses. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't want to read his Bible. Praise God, we know Uncle Freddie's not going to hell. You really need to get rid of that theology. The best thing you could do for Uncle Freddie is pray for him to be born again. And here's the problem. Somebody gave Uncle Freddie a false assurance now that he's okay because he walked an aisle. Jesus would never have done that. That's why Jesus in this sermon is saying, let me tell you who my true disciples are and who kingdom people are. It's not people that make a decision. Jesus was not interested in getting a bunch of decisions. He was calling disciples to himself who give up their lives and say, yes, Lord Jesus, who hitch their life and yoke up with him so that now they're saying, I would never have thought that, Lord. I would never have done that with my money. I would never have forgiven. I would never have tried to stay sexually pure. But because your word says it, I'm going to try to do it. Who help me, help me. And when you really get stuck, Praise God, you happen to be in a church family where you don't have to just be stuck all by yourself. And you say, somebody help me. Can I get counseling? Could I get help from another woman or man in our community group just over dinner? Is there a care group that I could sign up for where we'd go through some specific stuff to help me with grief or divorce or addiction? There's a desire to change. And please, 
him. And that's what begins to rock our world. The reason we've seen so little impact from Christianity in America is because so few of the people who say they're Christians are actually Christians. You know, every time you see one of those surveys, oh, 67% of of America still claim to be Christian. Don't be overly encouraged by that. There's no way our country would look like it does if that was true. One of the biggest mission fields today is among people who are already religious who think they're okay because they were baptized as a baby or baptized as an adult or walked an aisle or shook a hand or signed a card or lit a candle or burned some incense or did something that they think now takes care of them. But they've never been born again. And if you think I'm just making this harder than I should and scarier than it should be, when you look back at the Sermon on the Mount, you realize this is the second time he's bringing this message. And he's not bringing it exactly the same. Just like this message is very different than the first hour. I've got post-it notes all over this thing that you're not getting that they got. Because it was way too long. And I don't think he ever changed it because it was too long. Because he's perfect. But yours truly sometimes is like, ooh, we got to change that. He didn't do the same message. So listen to the Matthew 7 version. He did not intend this parable about house on the rock, house on the sand, to mean, oh, if you want to get serious about discipleship, then you begin to obey his word. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, that's the same as we got in Luke 6. Let me help you right there. When in, in the Semitic language in that day, when you said a name twice, it meant there was passion and emotion. And so get, you think about it, Jesus stood and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen. David in the Old Testament, when, when he found out his son Absalom had been killed, he said, oh, Absalom, Absalom. Jesus, when he really wanted to get Martha's attention for buzzing around the kitchen and rebuking her sister for sitting at his feet, said, Martha. Martha. So it was a way to express passion. Guess what? Someone could not just say Jesus is Lord, but could say it with passion and emotion. Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying you're not even in. But the one who does The will of my father on that day. What day? That final judgment day that we're all going to stand before him. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? This is getting scarier. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, I never Knew you. Depart from me. You can say Lord, Lord with gusto. And guess what? You can actually be serving in the church. Doing church stuff. Doing Christian kind of stuff. And Do you realize you can be a pastor and preach sermons and still go to hell? And be lost? I don't want to be that guy. I don't think I'm that guy. And when you want to know, am I truly saved? Listen to me. I hear people say, well... And, and mothers are so guilty of this. They'll actually try to talk a son or daughter, adult one, out of questioning their salvation. 
Oh, no, no, no. We know you're. I was there when you prayed your prayer. I was in your bedroom. You were seven. You cried. Mom, please stop. One of the best things you could do is let that son or daughter question whether they're okay when they're not living any way like Jesus has called us to live. Don't get confused today. Don't. I'm not saying because the Bible doesn't teach it. Clean up your life. Stop living with your girlfriend. Stop cussing and forgive somebody so that you can get saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. Come while you're still living with her. Come while you're messed up. Put your faith in Christ. What the Bible teaches is when you put your faith in him and you are born again, change begins to happen. These things are evidence that new life began. Does that make sense? We got a problem. People get so excited about it. I love Brad. I love it, Brad, when you say come by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus nothing. And then we say, and then I still do nothing. That's not biblical. That same grace that saves you empowers you in a new way to do something different. And it's not out of, oh, I've got to live for Jesus now. Dang. It was so much fun living for me. You want to. You love him. You know him. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ compels me. When you love Jesus, it moves you. It compels you to live differently. Perfectly? No. But differently. Struggling through your sin. Saying, help me somebody if you need to. Many times Jesus comforted the brokenhearted, comforted sinners like you and me. But this is one of those messages, and you'll find more than one of them, where instead of ending with comfort, he wanted it to end with a sober warning. Because he loves people. He doesn't want people to go to hell thinking they're okay when they're not. And so you think about the final phrase he leaves ringing in our ears is actually a sober warning about the total collapse and ruin of a life that's not built on the rock. It's not talking about someone who didn't decide to go 2.0 level discipleship. It means they were never saved to begin with. Ever. Regardless of what they're saying with their mouth, regardless of how they served in the church. You see it. I've been here 25 years, so I see it a lot. And it's heartbreaking to me. Trust me, I still have some unconverted adult kids. I baptized all of them. But I don't run around saying, I know all five of my kids are Christians. Just two of them don't live for him at all. No. Two of them were never born again. And I've watched kids who grew up in your Christian homes. You did it right. You did it well. You taught them. And then... You watch them go off to college or you watch them take their first job in another city. And all of a sudden, it's like Christianity is no longer real to them. They have no desire to follow Jesus or do anything that he said. The best thing you could do is pray for them. Not keep saying, well, I know he's a Christian. I know she's a Christian. Here's what was going on. It was always secondhand, cultural and environmental. As long as they were right here or in your home or in our student ministry, they could do it. But once they were removed from that and they stepped out on their own, it was over. They didn't lose their salvation, you guys. They were never saved to begin with. 
Now, don't hear me saying there can't be some bumps along the way where your kid leaves the home and does some terrible, heinous things initially. Sometimes they'll do that. I'm talking about she's 47 now. Don't keep saying I know she's a Christian if there's no desire to do anything that Jesus says. Say, oh God, in mercy, would you save her? Would you reveal your son to her? Would you bring new birth and new life? This passage tells us it's possible to be in and around the trappings and furniture of the gospel, to hear it preached, to hear it sung, and to even say you believe in some of the doctrines that support the gospel. And you could even do ministry that promotes the gospel and still not be in the kingdom because you've never experienced that gospel for yourself. Because when you do, when a gospel spark is ignited in you by faith in Christ, that spark becomes a bit of a flame that begins to change you and what you want and why you do what you do and what you think and what you believe. And you start to look somewhat different than the world who doesn't know him. Where are you? You're in church, but are you in the kingdom or not? What are you doing with all the information you have, Bible information? Would anybody look at you and say, oh my goodness, why do you do that with your money? Why did you forgive her? Why did you? Are you putting his word into practice? And do you, do you have a humble, humble posture of God, show me, show me my own heart first. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Not just the places where you console us and comfort us. We love it. But even these places where you bring us a sober warning because you love us that we might not be deceived and have our own hearts deceive us into thinking we're okay and we're in when we're not. Oh, God. Oh, God. Those of us that are on the rock. Make it more solid. Give us a renewed desire to say, I want to please you. I want to obey you. And if I need to get help, I'm going to finally get that help and stop making excuses. And for those who simply have religion and Bible information, would you unsettle them and bring them to genuine faith in Christ? New birth. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.